Ephesians chapter 2. saw last week, Paul is, Paul is calling his friends in Philippi, this church that he started, he calls them to stand firm, to stand firm in the face of people who are opposing them, people who want to silence the good news, people who want them to be quiet and to go home. And Paul tells them to stand firm. And so he continues that uh, in that same vein. Because they cannot stand firm unless they stand firm together. They must stand together. And so Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Let's give attention to God's word. Paul says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human appearance, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, my words will not do justice to your word, in particular to the beauty of this passage, one of the the most telling hymns about Jesus in all of Scripture. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand, Lord, that you would help me to preach clearly and truthfully that you would help us to hear rightly, that you would open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears and soften hard hearts of unbelief. Help us to see Jesus as Paul presents him here for our own good and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A paradox heard that term before, probably a paradox, something that on the face looks absurd, or looks like it can't be true. That's a paradox. And yet, when you get closer to it, upon closer examination, it in fact does turn out to be true. That's what Paul 
gives us here. He tells us that the way to go up is actually down. That the way to glory is first through humility. That's the paradox of the Christian life. You remember Paul has been calling his friends in Philippi to stand firm. He calls that living a worthy life, a life worthy of the gospel, a worthy citizenship. This is the way he describes it. That citizenship is paradoxical. It's a paradoxical way of life made possible by a paradoxical God. I mean, I I challenge you to search the world. Search, Search all of the different names, all of the different gods that humanity worships across the face of the planet and find this. Find a God, as we, as we sang, who is the King of glory, the Lord Almighty, who is willing to step down, who is, really, who is willing to lay aside the crown so that he can endure the cross. That's the glorious thing about Christianity, and it is unique. It is unique about Jesus. It is unique in the world But Paul isn't just giving us this so that we can learn some nifty information about Jesus. He's giving us this so that we can live together in harmony, so that we can live together in unity. That's Paul's aim. And so what this passage is really telling us is that true unity can only come from Jesus' humility. True unity only comes from Jesus' humility. And the first part of that is this principle. This is the principle that that I want you to to carry away today. That's what Paul is exhorting them to, and I believe us to, and it's this, that unity must come from humility. And that seems really unlikely in our day, doesn't it? Unity, Unity, in fact, seems impossible. I don't, uh, it's probably not news to you that our world, our country, our culture, all of it is deeply divided. Just say the words, immigration, guns, police, black, white, Trump, Russia. When I said those words, in your heart, and in my heart, your pulse quickened a little bit, didn't it? Right? You started working. Uh, the, the, the walls maybe started going up. You started working on your verbal, you, the, the, the next five words you were going to say, maybe your, maybe your post or your tweet, right? Whatever verbal onslaught needed to come next, you were ready for it. And if you said that, not just in here, but anywhere in the world... Those words would would accomplish the same thing. We have so much to be divided over. To answer Rodney King's question from 1992, you remember Mr. King? His assault at the hands of the Los Angeles Police Department led to race riots before some of you maybe were even born. 
I'm just glad I can, I'm just like now at the age where I can start saying that to people, right? Because I'm only 36. Um, but to answer what, what Rodney King said, right, was, can't we all just get along? And the answer is no. No, we can't. Because what makes matters worse is that our world wants to force unity, really wants to make it uniformity. Our world wants to say, you will agree with me. Either by force of law or by force of violence. That's, that's the way the world aims for unity. We will have unity, and by that I mean you will agree with me either because my pen is mightier or my sword is mightier. But that is not how unity, that's not how true unity happens. True unity can only happen, can only blossom from humility. True unity only happens at the foot of the cross. Look what Paul says here. His, uh, his joy is incomplete. If you've been with us for part of this series, uh, you remember that Paul has already said that he's rejoicing. And the odd thing about that is that Paul's in prison. He really doesn't have any reason to rejoice. It doesn't look good for Paul. But Paul is rejoicing because God is at work. He can see it and he knows it. He sees the, he sees the, the proof in his own life. And so he's rejoicing. And yet... He says, my joy is not complete. He's heard that his friends in Philippi aren't getting along. That pride is beginning to rear its ugly head in the church that he started. And so he's writing to them and in essence is saying, finish my joy, fill up my joy. I could not be happier if I were to hear that you were of one mind. That's what he calls them to, right? He says there in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, have the same mindset, having the same love. Not that we all love the same things, right? Some of you listen to really awful music that I don't want to listen to, right? We're not going to have the same He's not talking about our horizontal loves. He's talking about our vertical love. Having the same mindset, having the same love, possessed of the same love of Jesus. Being in full accord, having the same will, wanting the same things out of the world. Thinking the same thing. He's back to mind. He's... These different qualifications aren't meant to be divided and explained on an individual basis. They're they're the same diamond of unity, just in different facets. Paul's saying, I want you to be one. What would make me happier than anything is that you are one in Christ. And that's something we need to hear. That's something we need to apply. that, That when we call for unity, when Paul calls for unity here, it's not... Unity simply for unity's sake. It's not, hey, let's just ignore all the important things that set us apart and let's just get along. The church has done that in the past. 
and it's gone poorly. It's forfeited the truth. It's forfeited the gospel. That's not what Paul is calling for. He's calling for unity in Jesus. Right? We have the same mindset. Even though we may have different political leanings, we have the same mindset in Christ. Even though we love different kinds of people and different kinds of things, we have the same love in Christ. Even though we come from this different socioeconomic strata and backgrounds, we want the same thing, and that is for Christ to be honored. That is where our unity is. And so it, it bears saying that if I worship Allah and you worship Jesus, we cannot have unity because our loves are in two different places. The unity that Paul is talking about is unity founded upon and rooted in Jesus. And that is what makes Paul happy. But that unity isn't automatic, is it? It doesn't really come natural, does it? Right? What I, my, my tendency is to think about how we differ. Who in this room do I share commonality with? Who do I have nothing in common with? Right? I'm looking for ways that we're different. Unity does not come natural, so how do we work on it? How do we get to it? Paul tells us in verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's a bad, bad fruit, bad root. The bad fruit is selfish ambition, strife. Maybe your translation says rivalry. This is that, this is that sense of every man for himself. That's the, that's the bad fruit. And the bad root behind it is conceitedness. This is the old word, vainglory, empty glory, that I, that I think more highly of myself than I ought to think. We are an entitlement-driven culture. And we are an entitlement-driven people. And I'm not talking about people out there. I'm talking about people in here. I'm talking about me. What I want to do, and in this is, I mean, think about, think about the, the biggest conflict in your life right now. What's it... What's at the root of it? Think about the, maybe the biggest spat you've ever had with your spouse or kids. Think about why you can't seem to get along with a friend or with your siblings. Is it not because you feel entitled to something they won't give you? Is it not because you want to defend your own territory to their harm? Is it not selfish? Ambition and an overblown sense of pride, you are entitled to this. Paul says, do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But if I don't say this, do nothing from selfish ambition. But if I don't let them know, do nothing from selfish ambition. 
but I'll be a doormat. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Instead, Paul says, consider others more important than yourself. That's the good fruit. And the good root behind it is humility. Literally, lowly-mindedness. How do I conquer selfish ambition and conceit? In humility, I think that you're important, more important than me. I look out for your interest more than my own. In fact, in God's paradoxical way, looking out for your interest actually ensures my own interest. What if, what if you dropped that filter down? Right? If, if, uh, if you were to take my car, if I were, try, if I were to try and get a, uh, a license plate in the state of Georgia right now, I would have to go for an emissions test and it would fail. Because my car is old enough that the catalytic converter is not working properly anymore, right? So that means right, that the catalytic converter is this little box that takes the raw exhaust and there's a little chemical reaction I don't understand in there and that supposedly what comes out the other end is cleaner, okay? Um, well, that's not working anymore and so I'm not being green, right? What's coming out of the back end of my car is not as clean as it should be, right? Because that filter is not there. What if you dropped that filter... Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourself. What if you put that catalytic converter over the raw exhaust coming out of your mouth? Or out of your keyboard? Or out of your heart? Because Jesus says that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. What it often speaks is not very pretty. Paul says, consider others more important than yourself. That's the good fruit, and it comes from the good root of humility. And that's the only way we're going to have unity. So where in the world does this come from? We can't generate this on our own. Where does this come from? Paul tells us in verse 5, he begins what is probably an ancient Christian hymn. And he says this, Have this mind, this mindset, this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. He's, He's purposefully vague there. Paul, are you telling me to imitate Jesus? Or are you saying that because I'm united to Jesus, I'm in Jesus, therefore the mind of Jesus can be mine? What are, what are you saying? Is it imitation or, or do I already have it? Is, it? is it union? And the answer to that either or question is yes. Jesus' mind is yours because you are in Christ, therefore you can imitate him. So what is Jesus' mindset? What Have you ever heard a story about a friend or a relative and you thought, what were they thinking? Right? So we can ask the question of this passage, what in the world was Jesus thinking? Paul's about to tell you. Paul, Paul takes us inside 
the attitude of Jesus right here. You, if you ever wanted to know what Jesus was thinking when Jesus did what he did, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, right here. Here's Jesus' attitude. First, God becomes a man. The creator becomes the creature. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's an odd word. It's, it's only used here in the New Testament. And so we have to kind of wrestle to understand what it means. What does it mean that Jesus didn't think equality was a thing to be grasped? And the, and the one sense of it is this. That even though it was Jesus' right, indeed it was his very nature, he gave it up. He didn't have to hold on to it. He forfeited it. He let it go. Contra me, I love to grasp. I love to be entitled. I love to get things I really don't even deserve. Right? We flap our gums and stomp our feet and pound our fists over what we think we're entitled to. But Jesus is entitled to, the, to equality with God. He is God, and yet he chooses to forfeit that right. Contra Adam in the garden, who is made in the image of God. And yet, when the serpent offers him the lie, when the serpent says, you can be like God. If you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. Adam grasped. And when Adam grasped, it breaks the world. And when I grasp, and when you grasp, we break our lives. And we break our families. And we break our friends. And so we need a Jesus who refuses to grasp, but instead lets go. The creature becomes, creator becomes the creature. The king willfully becomes a servant. What Paul is doing is he's tracing Jesus' downward descent. What begins in the throne room of heaven takes big steps down, right? So the creator becomes the creature, the king becomes a servant, a slave. Verse 6, verse 7, excuse me. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. How did he empty himself? He didn't give up being God, but he took on the form of a servant. This is subtraction by addition. Jesus steps down from heaven, and rather than stepping into a throne room, he steps into a stable. And rather than wielding a scepter, he wields the carpenter's hammer. He takes the form of a, of a servant. The one person on the planet who had every right to tell every person where they could go and how they ought to go there, in a sense... Shuts his mouth. And as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, he becomes like a lamb led to the slaughter. 
And if that were not denigrating enough, if that were not low enough, the servant becomes a curse. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human appearance, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to whom? The Gospels are rife with Jesus' obedience. And at every turn, it's obedience to the Father. Whatever the Father bids him do, that he does. No person on earth has ever done that. I struggle to get a simple yes, sir, out of my children, right? Every day is a daily obedience battle. It's not a battle for Jesus. Jesus was obedient to the Father's will. To what point? All the way to the point of death. And not the quiet death in his sleep on a bed. Paul says, the death of the cross. Not only was Jesus obedient to the Father's will, but he willfully submitted himself to be sacrificed for your sake. Paul says, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus becomes, Jesus the king of heaven, who had every right to want everything else for himself, chooses to divest himself of that entitlement. And he chooses, chooses death. Chooses a scandalous, cursed death. The only man who's ever been able to choose death. No one else gets to do that. But Jesus did. No no sacrificial lamb ever went willingly to the altar. Right? So if you could locate yourself in the Old Testament or in one of the, the many other cultures that sacrifice animals even still today, can you imagine once once your animal figures out that it's about to meet the knife, how hard it is to drag it over to the altar where you have to slit its throat, right? I don't imagine they're probably like, oh, yeah, good, let's go with that. I'm down, right? Jesus goes to his altar, to your cross, willingly. And that's the beauty of the gospel. We cannot gloss over the cross. That is humility. Humility must come from Christ. But it doesn't end at the cross. Humility leads to glory. The cross leads to the crown. Verse 9. Therefore, therefore, because Jesus Submitted himself to death because Jesus had the attitude of willfully giving up what he was really entitled to and chose shame instead. Therefore, because he did that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus has been returned to his rightful place. God the Father looks at the willing, obedient sacrifice of God the Son and says, Well done, 
Come on home. Come back and receive the throne. Come back and receive the crown. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's the beauty of humility. That's the glory that it leads to. Jesus receives what he so rightly deserves after the cross. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Just Paul's pointing us, Jesus is already crowned in heaven. But not everybody acknowledges it. Not every, of, of, the, of the billions on the planet, not everyone acknowledges that Jesus is king. But Paul is saying they will one day. And sadly, on that day, it will be too late. The knees that bow on that day will bow grudgingly. And the tongues that confess that Jesus is Lord on that day will do so begrudgingly. Because on that day, when the King comes in all His glory with the sword from His mouth riding on a white horse, His glory will be evident. We love the strong man, don't we? Think of your favorite action movie. Is it ever this guy? We love James Bond. We love Jason Bourne. These guys can do so much with their muscles, so much with their wits, so much with their gadgets. When was the last movie you saw The Suffering Servant? Who, though he had all the power, chose to give it away so that he could pay for someone else's life so that he could redeem a people so that he could forgive sins Jesus there will, there will be a day when Jesus is very clearly the strong man and on that day it will be too late today is the day of salvation today is the day to bow the knee willingly to confess that Jesus is Lord willingly. And the beauty of that invitation is that it's made possible by His grace. That what you have here in this picture of the king who becomes a servant, who becomes a curse, who becomes a king, is that it's different from every other picture, from any other religion you could possibly believe on the face of the planet. Every other king demands your allegiance by following a certain set of rules and laws. Jesus invites your allegiance by paying for your inability to keep his demands and laws. Jesus invites you to believe on him. That suffering servant that we read about in Isaiah 53 gives up his life so that we could be paid for. And so, yes, the Christ-following life 
is a paradox. Because the king that it follows is a paradox. Something that seems absurd, but when you really look at it, it turns out to be true. The way down is the way up. He who bears the cross will wear the crown. And so I invite you, lay aside your petty entitlements. Lay aside your conceit, your vain glory. And come to Him, who though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. So that you, through His poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we praise you and we thank you that more than demanding our obedience on high, from on high, though you do, you are a lawgiver and your law is right and good and perfect. And every mouth is stopped by it. We are convicted because we do not follow it, even though that is true. Yet paradoxically, were, were it not written down for us, we would not believe that it were true. You came down not to make a way, but to make the way. The old camp song is not quite right. Jesus didn't come from heaven to earth to show the way. Jesus came from heaven to earth to clear the way. So that we could become yours. And so that we could belong and live together in unity. We praise you for this. We thank you for this. As we go to the table now, we ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.